Good morning. It's great to see you here this day. Um, I was sharing with a couple of officers in the first hour. I can't think of a better place to be than here. Do you agree with me on that? Oh, that was so weak. <laughs> Even if I wasn't getting paid to do this, which I spent most of my life not being, or that being the case, I should say. I loved church. I love being with the people of God. I love uh, what this is all about. And I, I pray that you do too. I pray that you do too. Um, I want to encourage you uh, this morning. Uh, if you're a Christ follower and you've never been baptized, uh, just do that. Uh, we're going to have this class after third hour. I'm going to leave the class. It's only a half an hour long, and we feed you. Life's good, amen? And uh, it's just such a moment of, of putting a stake in the ground when you're baptized. It's just this great moment of uh, proclamation uh, to everyone. I'm a Christ follower. Uh, Vicky and myself and our two oldest girls all were baptized at, at, uh, at a pond when I was 28. I'd been a follower since I'd been 13, but just didn't know what that was about. And I, I just remember what, what a moment that was for us as a family as we just said, hey, as for me and my house, we're going to follow Christ. You know, and so give that serious consideration. We just spent 10 weeks addressing the question, who is God? Now we're going to spend three weeks looking at the question, who are we? These two series coupled together are meant to prepare us for this false uh, series, you know, Unshakable Faith in an Unsteady World. Uh, I, I, they're just preparing us for this moment, I think, that God has for us. I'm going to be using our vision statement, Encounter Grace, Grow in Grace, and give grace as kind of an outline for this Who Are We uh, series. So today we're going to look at the question, Who Are We, uh, from an encountering grace standpoint. Next week we're going to look at the question, Who Are We, from a growing in grace context. You come to God through grace, right? Amen, right? By faith through grace, and you abide in Him by His name, by the grace of God also. You see, we Christians, we tend to come to God uh, knowing that it's a free gift, our salvation. We tend to get that concept, and then we get born again, and we try to live like crazy uh, uh, in our own strength. And it's a frustrating experience. You come by grace, and you abide in grace. And next week, we're going to kick off group sign-up. We're going to have a group ministry day, and there'll be a bunch of group leaders out there telling you what they're going to do in their groups and all that kind of thing, um, preparing us for fall. Um, Partly the day is done on purpose like this because growing in grace is a community thing. We are to help one another uh, in our most holy faith. And a lot of Christian life is experienced on a small level, and groups are a wonderful vehicle for that to take place. And then the week after that, we're going to look at the who are we question um, from a giving grace standpoint. Um, I came to Grace Point in 2010, uh, right after Christmas of 2009. I started here January 1st, and I introduced us to this concept of this vision statement, encounter grace, grow in grace, and give grace, and then I spent that whole year preaching on it. I'm doing only a three-week series right now, okay, so this is a, a quick, super quick summary. But I remember when we got to the giving grace that fall, Grace Givers, anybody remember that Grace Givers series? Some of you were here then. I'm just curious, how many remember that? Anybody? Great, great, this will be helpful. Um, as I was going through that series, I had several people talk to me, can we be grace givers? Doesn't grace just come from God? How can we call ourselves grace givers? Well, here's where that whole thought came from. Um, 
It's, it's 1 Peter 4.10, where we're told in that section of the Bible that God has imparted to us grace in the, in the, in the form of gifts. And we're to use those gifts to serve one another. And the verse says, administering God's grace in its various forms. So my question to that is yes. Yes, we're to become grace givers, but the grace is coming from God. He gives us these gifts to serve one another, and that's part of the means of his grace being distributed to the body of Christ. Amen? Right? And so we're going to talk about what it means to be grace givers and who are we. And on that particular Sunday, we're going to have a uh, ministry fair, um, talk about all the volunteer opportunities that are out there, all the ways that we can serve uh, one another. And, and so it provides this great moment of volunteerism and, and talking about actually putting our faith into action. I, I have this model. I, I will go to my grave stating this model when it comes to the Christian life. If you want to, I think, live your life effectively for Jesus Christ, you should do one big. You should have a body moment like this. In the course of a week, you should do one small. You should look at another Christian eye to eye and say, how is it with your heart? And you should serve. And the missing element to much of Christianity is the serving part of that. And that's where a lot of transformation takes place because that's where the rubber hits the road. And you begin to actually try to help another human being uh, in the cause of Jesus Christ. And so that is our third week out from now. I'm kind of excited about this. In fact, I'm trying to contain myself. I'm a little bit giddy, which is not good for me. What's right around the corner right now? What are we right in the midst of right now? Football season! You weren't expecting that, were you? I love football. I hate this time of year as a football player. I mean, if you're SDSU football player or if you're a high school football player, you're right into that time of the year that just kind of stinks. Because it's hot, you're doing all these practices, you're you're doing all this fundamental work, uh, all this kind of stuff. the story is told of, this, uh, of, of Vince Lombardi, that um, legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, and how he would start every football season. He'd gather together all these burly football players, all these kind of rough guys, and he would hold up a football and he'd say, gentlemen, this is a football. And he would start their, you know, summer training, uh, reintroducing them to the fundamentals. And, 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 and that's what Summer's about, if you're a football player, you're getting ready to play the game. You're getting ready for the fall and for the season. And you're establishing yourself and your identity. Who are we going to be as a club? What's gonna, are we going to run? Are we going to pass? You know, are we going to have this kind of defense or that kind of, you know, you're establishing all this fundamentals. This is who we're going to be. And that's all taking place in the summer. And then we get to that, that question that's asked so frequently, are you ready for some football? Anybody watch football here at all? I got an amen almost there. And it's about football. I don't know if that feels me. Anyway, yeah, are you ready for some football? And I always say, yes, I'm ready for some football, you know. Well, when it comes to church, we're kind of going through the same process. This summer has been a preparation uh, time for us as a church. We've been looking at who is God. Now we're going to look at who are we. And we're getting our kind of self established so that we can really begin to take a faith journey this fall, that we can really do what the church is supposed to do, that we can begin to say, I am a person of unshakable faith in an unsteady world because I know who my God is and I know who I am. And so kind of this moment is really, really important, and it's important for what's to come also. And so I would ask you a question a little bit today uh, 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 in the vein of, are you ready for some football? Are you ready for some church? You don't even know how to answer that. Somebody going, yes, yes. 
Yeah, are you ready for God to move? Are you ready for a faith journey? Are you excited about what God has in store for you? I sure am. And so I'm going to ask you again, are you ready for some church? Yeah, that's a B plus. <laughs> I'm awful hard on you all, aren't I? Um, well, here we go. Since we're using the term grace, I, I want to begin uh, today's message on encountering grace by defining what is the word grace mean. And here's what it means. It's from the Greek word uh, charis. One of my granddaughters is named charis. And every time I hear this word grace, I think of her. And here's what the word means. Uh, grace means this. It is the favorable disposition of God towards sinners on account of Christ. It is his favorable disposition because of Christ. It's God's unearned and unmerited favor. It's unearned and unmerited. And here's the part that I think most Christians don't get and is incredibly important. It's God's empowerment. It's God's empowerment. Another word you could use is enablement. It's God's empowerment or enablement to come to him by faith and then to live by faith. Who are we? At Grace Point, we're a bunch of people who want to encounter the grace of God. And we understand that it's unearned, it's unmerited, and it's empowering and enabling. And it's being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's being sure of, of your sonship, of being a daughter in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We're people who are encountering the grace of God. Now, what I'm going to do for the remainder of the day is, is drill down on what it means to encounter grace, what it means to be a person who's living in grace by using a very familiar parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Um, this parable uh, of Jesus is known mostly uh, for the younger son's story, the son that was uh, wayward, who was uh, totally disconnected uh, from his father and then restored. But really, the parable of the prodigal is a story of two wayward sons, two sons who have gone astray, and the father who uh, represents God and how he deals with these boys and tries to drive them back to relationship with himself. Um, they're trying to do life their way, and they need to live in a grace based life relationship with their father. So I'm going to look at the parable from this standpoint. Who are we? I'm not going to look at it from the standpoint of who is God. The father here represents who is God in, in this parable. We've just done that for 10 weeks, right? So I'm on purpose not going to look at it from that standpoint much. It's going to slip in there a little bit. But mainly I'm going to look at this parable from the standpoint of who are we? And we're going to deal with two issues that tend to keep us from encountering the grace of God. Lawlessness and legalism. And these two sons exhibit these two problems. So we're going to begin with the story of the younger son, who is also known as the prodigal son. Um, his is a case of uh, disconnection. Disconnection. His is a case of disconnection. Let me read his story to you here from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to a census, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, and I love this part of the story, I love this part of the story, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And as though the father didn't even hear that. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. God knows how to party, amen? Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and so they begin to celebrate. This is quite a story. The younger son paints the picture of the problem of those disconnected from God. And here's the problem in a sentence. The younger son wanted the blessings without the relationship. He wanted the blessings of his father, but didn't desire the relationship with him. The father, uh, who is God in this parable, is viewed as a means to an end. Basically, the young son said to his dad, I want to enjoy the good life. I want my inheritance now. And in essence, he was saying, I wish you were just dead so I could have my stuff. And for a season, this money bought him some good times and bought him some friends. And the younger son evidently didn't realize what he had in his father's household. It's a startling request, you know. Father, give me my share of the estate. It's audacious. It's it's just irreverent. And the father would have had every, every right to say to this irreverent request by his son, no way, you wicked son, get out of here, and you're no longer a son of my household, and literally expel him from the household with blows. But the father gave him of his property. And you have to understand how startling that would have been to the reader in the time of Christ, because this just wouldn't have taken place. See, property comes from the word uh, bios in, in, in the Greek, and it means the manner of life. And the father's wealth was tied to his land. That's how he made his living. And so it was a request by the son to the father, give up part of your means of making a living, give me what I want now, and I'm going to just leave you. It was a request for the father to really tear his life apart. Now listen to this parallel for us. All of us, at one point in our lives, have rejected Jesus Christ. All of us have rejected God. We have lived life as though we don't need God. We live life as though God doesn't exist, even if we're followers of him. We, we disconnect from him in our marriages. We do our marriages that, in a way that's not God-honoring. We don't even bring God to bear in our marriages sometimes until we're to this point of you know, disaster. We often raise our kids in a way that's absent from God. We're just so disconnected from God. And I think it tears the Father's heart apart. It tears his life apart in us. 
Yeah, and you know what? Our rejection of Jesus Christ cost the father a lot. Cost him the life of his son. It cost a great penalty to him. And I, 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 oftentimes we'll read this story and we'll say, that's not me. That's so-and-so that's disconnected. That's that rebel over there doing drugs. That's that person over there drinking. That's that person, that my neighbor that swears all the time. Yet every one of us is disconnected from God to some degree at some point. Amen? And we're all prodigal. And we have to understand this younger son's request was really for his father to tear his life apart. And oftentimes that's our request of our God too. I want your blessings. I want your fruit. I want all the good things from you, God. But I really don't want you. I want to just live life my way, but when I have a need, then I'm going to cry out to you to fix it. You know, I'm going to use you as that, that foxhole God, and I want the good things for you, but I don't want you, Father. That's living a disconnected life, and we all fall into this trap, I think, a lot more than we realize. The prodigal's lifestyle equaled lawlessness. It equaled lawlessness. Now, the word prodigal means extravagant spender, and the boy had that part of life down, uh, but you know who the real extravagant spender was in this story? It's, it's the father who represents God. After all, who had the resources that he was willing to give up? It was the father. The son just spent them. I think God is recklessly extravagant with you and me, more so than we realize. The action uh, 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 of the young son is more representative, I think, of each one of us than we realize. See, we may not be squandering a fortune. We may not be doing all, all this wild living. But I tell you what, I wonder how often we approach our Heavenly Father as kind of a heavenly sugar daddy. Just give me what I want and stay out of my way. And, and, and we may do that more unintentionally than we realize, but we do it a lot. We do it a lot. And, and I think that tears the life of God apart in us. So now let's get to this process of restoration, okay? Have I got your attention yet? Because oftentimes we read this, this story and do this story in the prodigal, and I think we disconnect. We don't see ourselves in it, and we're to see ourselves in it, amen? So now let's look at the process of restoration. Brokenness brought the younger son to an encounter of grace with his father. Brokenness brought him to this point of seeing his need of relationship with his dad. A little time with a hungry belly, a little time in the mud with the pigs, and all of a sudden the younger brother has a different perspective. My life stinks. Literally, right? It stinks. And a life with my father is way better than this. What was I thinking? What was I doing? I'm maybe no longer worthy to be called a son, but maybe I can slip back into his good graces by, by being a servant. But I love the reaction of the father. I mean, the son comes home, he's repentant, he's broken, he just wants to be in the father's household again, even if it's just to be a servant. And I love what the father does. He does something so undignified for an elder of that culture. He runs to his son. They never would run in that culture because to run in that culture, he would have had to lift up his robes and run and bare his legs, and they never did that. That was so undignified. And we see this father getting all undignified, full of compassion and full of joy, running to this wayward son. Do you see God like that? See, who are we? Well, we should be people who are broken. And coming to God in honesty, in authenticity, and then we'll experience an unbridled, undignified, compassionate God gracing our lives. It's such a tender picture here 
such a tender picture of our God and who we are in our God. God takes the disconnected, God takes the unlawful, the undeserving, and he gives them a new robe. We get the robe of Jesus Christ, right? In our God. He takes our robe of unrighteousness and he robes us in the robe of Jesus Christ. That's what the father in the parable did for his son. He said, I'm going to put my robe on you. That's my identity. You're now part of my family. That robe in that culture would be their identity. And then that father in that parable puts a ring on his son's finger. That was to say, you have authority. You're part of my family. You have authority now. And he puts sandals on his feet. And that was to say, I'm protecting you. And isn't that what God does for us in Jesus Christ? We who are sinners, who are far from God, who have rejected him, who are, who are, are, are lawless, who have, have, have done these wrong things, God puts his robe on us. It's Christ. We look like Christ. We're called Christian. We're, we're Christ followers. That's who we are now. He, he gives us the authority. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and we have authority in, in, in Christ, and he, and he protects us. I mean, the prodigal is a picture of what every one of us gets in Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from the younger son? What do we see from the younger son? We, we recognize that we're to come to God with contrition, with humbleness, understanding our desperate need of him. And in doing so, we then put ourselves in this place of encountering the grace of God, encountering the grace of God, and the enablement of a father who runs to us. In fact, in this parable, we see that the father throws a party for his wayward younger son. A fattened calf celebration would include the whole village. He says basically to everybody around him, party with me. This son of mine who was dead is now alive. Let's have a party. Let's rejoice. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? All of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. It's a little micro picture of what happens when the wayward one comes to God. Heaven rejoices. Heaven parties. And I I just, I I love this picture. I know for myself, the older I grow in Jesus, the more reflective I get and the more desperate I am for him. And I know by being desperate for Jesus, contrite, humble, that's just a place of grace where God pours out his enablement and his power into our lives. But there's more to the story of the prodigal than this first young son story. There's more insight on encountering God's grace. And this one's often overlooked by casual reading. Paul Harvey had a way when he would tell a story uh, of kind of leaving you hanging on a cliff, often at a commercial break. And then he would come back from that break and he'd say, now for the rest of the story. And we get to this moment in the prodigal son story. We get to this now for the rest of the story moment. Um, so the father has his other son, an older son, and he comes home to this party, and he's upset about the father's generosity to this wayward young son, and rightly so. The younger son had squandered one-third of his father's wealth. That's what he would have inherited as the younger son. And this older son, like the younger son, does something wrong. He cuts off relationship with his father. But the source is different. However, the outcome is the same. The outcome is the same. It's a cutting off of the grace of the father. His could be called the case of disenfranchisement. Okay? 
And that's a long word, disenfranchisement. But his could be called the case of disenfranchisement. Um, and he cut off relationship with his father by, re- you know, the, let me back up. The younger son cut off relationship with his father by rejecting the father. The older son cut off relationship by his resentment of his father. And he cut off relationship because he thought, some rights I have are, are, are being violated by my father. Um, disenfranchised means to be deprived of a right to be deprived of a right. And oftentimes we all hear this term used when a, a voting block of people aren't given their right to, to, to vote for some reason, um, denying a group the right to vote. They are called a disenfranchised group. But in a general sense, when you hear the word disenfranchised, it means that person is not getting a right they deserve or a right they think they deserve met. And it's a real common thing in Christianity uh, for this approach to be used with God. God, I've tried to do right. You what? Owe me. God, I've done this, this, and this. Now you need to do this, this, and this. That's this un- uh, looking at God as, 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 as I have rights here, God, and you owe me. And we do this a lot more often, I think, than we realize. And of course, all that's wrong because God owes us what? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And this parable is coming to this great climax. Get back in the parable with me. It's coming to this great climax. You've got this party going on. The whole village is, 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 is invited. And then the older son shows up, and he's the rain cloud without the rain. He's the downer boy. He's kind of poo-pooing the party. And I was reminded uh, when reading this of the, 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 the movie that came out called Father of the Bride. Anybody ever watch that movie, Father of the Bride with Steve Martin and Marty Shorten and all those guys? It's kind of a fun movie to watch. And in this movie, uh, uh, Martin's daughter is getting married, and he just is having a hard time dealing with that as, as the father of the bride. And then mom and daughter go crazy, and they hire this really goofy wedding planner. Remember that guy? Frank? Franck, and that's short, he plays that character. And every time Franck is turning around and trying to do something, you got um, the father of the bride kind of resisting it, kind of, oh, how much is it going to cost me, kind of being the downer. And at one point, Franck turns to, uh, to uh, Steve Martin and says, every party needs a party pooper. Do you remember that? And that was what uh, Martin was doing. And when I read the story of the prodigal, I think, you know what? That's the older son. He's the party pooper in this story. Listen to what happens. I'm going to read Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look! All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill a fat calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother, you getting the little nuances of this? This brother of yours was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found. Here's the problem. The older son didn't get his father's heart. 
didn't get it at all. And he casts a no-confidence vote in his father. He thinks, I've earned some things. I deserve some things. The older son exhibited classic religiosity. Classic, man. This is just classic. Religiosity says, God, you owe me for what I've done. That's how the Pharisees thought in the days of Christ. That's how the teachers of the law thought in the days of Christ. In fact, most likely, they were represented by the older son in this parable. Jesus had to dispel this wrong thinking in another parable, in the parable of the vineyard. In the parable of the workers of the vineyard, uh, we're told that this vineyard owner wanted to take his crop in, so he hires a group of people in the early morning for a denarius. He said, work for me for the day in my vineyard, and I'll pay you this denarius when you get done. So they work for him all through the heat of the day. Well, as the day progresses on and on and on, the, the vineyard owner uh, is seeing that, hey, I'm not getting my crop taken in, so he keeps hiring people as the day goes on, and he says, I'll pay you what's right. Well, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when he's reckoning with all his workers for the day, the vineyard owner, who, by the way, represents God, paid everybody a denarius. Well, the ones who were hired early in the morning begin to grumble. They're a bit disenfranchised. They thought, I'm going to get paid more than these other guys because I've worked longer. And, and the landowner, the vineyard owner said, why are you upset? I gave you what I said I would give you. And the point of the parable, Jesus concludes with saying the owner can do what the owner wants to do. He's doing nothing wrong. And God can do what God wants to do. Who are we to judge him, basically? Religiosity says, God, you owe me. But really, what can we do that God would owe us? We've got to ask that question. What can I really do that God would owe me for anything? Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says this. Um, Our righteousness are like filthy rags. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. I uh, like to work on cars. I, I often do uh, pretty messy work. Um, and I often grab a clean rag when I start that job. By about midway through the job, guess what? That rag is so full of oil and grease when I try to use it, it just wipes the garbage around. It doesn't do its job anymore. And every time I think of Isaiah's scripture, our righteousness are like filthy rags, I think of that case in my own life. Uh, if I wipe with that rag, it just wipes the mess around. Our righteousness just wipes mess around. It doesn't do any good. It's not right. God doesn't owe us anything. Get this. The religious lifestyle equals legalism. Legalism. That's service done for God with the motive of getting something. Service done for God with the motive of getting something. The older brother had him wrong. He'd hung around. He'd been faithful. Um, but his heart was off a beat, two, three, four, a hundred. It was off. He didn't get the father's heart. And was he really slaving? What an attitude. Was his life really that hard? The question begs to be asked, was he really obedient to his father? Because at this moment when he's having this exchange with his father, I don't see an obedient heart. When he says, look, what he's really saying is, look, you. It's condescending. It's disrespecting. It's a vote of no confidence. And it's not obedience-based. It's not you know, what's it best for my father kind of based. And he says, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your order and you never gave me a calf to have fun with my own friends. Wham, 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 right? Why am I not getting this stuff? Why am I not getting what I'm owed? My rights are being violated here. I'm better than him. You seeing the context here of this? 
We Christians do this a lot more, I think, than we realize. When you're hanging around for a long time, you've been in the church for a long time, religiosity can set in where you think, I've done all these things, God owes me. I'm not like that person over there that's doing drugs. I'm not like that person over there that's yelling at his wife out in the front yard. You know, I'm raising my kids as best I can. Blah, 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 blah. It's religiosity, and it's disgusting to God. It's alienating to God because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The older son is to get something. His father wants him to get something. He's pleading with him. He's saying, Son, everything I have is yours. Why are you looking at it this way? But get my heart. Get my heart. This younger brother of yours, he's your brother. He's not my son. He's your brother. This younger brother of yours, he was dead. And now he's alive. Get my heart. Religiosity is so dangerous because it deceives people into thinking, my actions saved me. And it cuts them off from encountering the grace of God. Let's get to the process of restoration with the older son. Good deeds must flow from a desire to please God, not to appease God. You getting the difference there? Good deeds must flow from a desire to please God, not to appease God. This leads to reliance on God and to an encountering of his grace. We were at this uh, seminar the last couple days on leadership, and they had a reflection moment in there, and it really began to speak to my heart a little bit because I'm kind of a, a bit of a type A personality, but I also see big picture really well, and I can do details, but details kind of escape me. That's why if you all ask me, what about this group and that group, I'll look at you with a blank look like, what? Go see Pastor Dave or whatever, because I don't know detail very well that way. But here's what I begin to struggle with, with an honesty with myself. God, I want to connect with you so bad. I want to please you so badly. How do I do that without making it a project? Because if I want to read my Bible, then I, I put it on there and I check off when I read my Bible. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm so kind of results-driven sometimes. And how do I keep these things from becoming legalism? And I, I thought of a, a story of my dog when I grew up. His was a black lab, and we had creatively named him Blackie because he's a black lab. And I was about 13 or 14, so give me some leniency here. But one day I was out in the backyard throwing a ball to him. He loved to retrieve that ball. I mean, he loved to retrieve that ball. And he just loved to interact with me. He just loved hanging around with me. I didn't, you know, he just, that's Labradors. And so I thought, I wonder how close I could throw this ball to the wall of our garage. And yet he will retrieve it without running into the wall of the garage. I was 14, 13, whatever, you know. He would run after the ball with everything in him, single-minded and refusing that ball and drop it at my feet and go, <laughs> you know what I mean? Throw it again, throw it again, throw it again. You know what I mean? So one time I threw the ball. I feel kind of bad about this even to today. It landed right there in the foundation corner between the yard and the corner of the garage. You know, it was right there. Oh, my goodness. He never saw the wall. 
he ran at that ball, full bore, grabbed the ball, and upended into the wall. And his back feet were off the wall. I mean, it's funny, kind of. He's totally upside down on his head with that ball in his mouth. And I go, ooh, you know what I mean? And he falls over, and he has a big old blockhead like Galabadar's doing. He goes, kind of shakes his head, because I think I half knocked him out. Runs right back, dropped the ball on my feet, goes, ha! And I felt terrible. But every time I think of living my life to please God and not appease God, I think of my dog Blackie. He would run into a wall for me. And he'd drop that ball back in my feet and say, let's go again. We need to get a hold of this somehow, brothers and sisters, that we are to live our lives to please God, not to appease him, that we'd run into a wall for God, shake our noggins off and come back and say, I'm ready for round two, God. That we'd be so in love with him and so devoted to him that our deeds would truly blow, uh, come from our, our hearts and that it would be just a desire to please him. Because otherwise we're gonna slip down that, that slope of legalism really quickly. Who are we at Grace Point? We're to be a people who come to God broken and contrite, understanding that our disconnection points is where God will willingly run to us and we can encounter his grace if we'll just be broken and contrite. Who are we at Grace Point? We're to live to please our God not to appease him, devoted to him and in love with him. That's who we are to be. That's the story of the prodigal son parable. So here's our conclusion today. It's simply this. Both sons have the same problem. They wanted to control the father. They wanted to control the father. Who are we at Grace Point? We're not in control of the father. We are ones who are relying on God's grace. Amen? We're relying on God's grace. We're going to sing this song, and then we're going to conclude with a... a a moment of prayer. Would you please stand?